Hello, and welcome to Concept Aware. I am Sibylla Smith. Here I host unscripted conversations with contemporary photographers, curators, and critics to discuss concept development and the photo bookmaking process. I do so through the lens of Concept Aware, my trademarked framework that identifies the layers of the creative process to highlight how artists bring their ideas to fruition in image, book, and exhibition form. To learn more about how to apply my creative framework to your work, join one of my online small group workshops. You may find dates and details on my website, jsibillasmith.com. Also available is my Paris Photo in Your Pocket. Five hours of curated content and exclusive interviews live from the world's largest international photo fair happening this November. I offer to take you with me virtually and share my decade of experience at this fair to bring you highlights on trends within contemporary photography and the latest in global photo books. I have the distinct pleasure of hosting David Campany for the third time on Concept Aware. Today, we discuss his latest book, Very Pictorial Conceptual Artist, published with Stanley Barker Books. It is an elegant celebration of the fabricated photographs of conceptual multidisciplinarian artist Robert Cumming. David and I unpack a few suitcases of ideas generated by Cummings' work, including philosophical understandings of perception and what constitutes the medium of photography. Our conversation is expansive, exploratory, and a lot of fun. We are so glad you are here. Let's begin. David, what a treat of a book is very pictorial, conceptual art. It is its own pedifor a small oven. It is filled with layers of deliciousness and delight. You have met your match in Cummings, a fellow polyglot, a multidisciplinarian on an observational pursuit, swimming in the world with a rarefied set of goggles to see through. You both explore mediums and disciplines in search of a philosophy of perception. There's almost an accidental nature to how you both honor history and push us forward simultaneously, being aware of paradox, but not caught up in it. I witness you each being nimble in interspersing media to communicate, each being engaged in a dissemination of information, a sharing of thought, insight, imagination, without rendering your particular vantage point with an authoritarian hand, but more like a reverent one, an ecumenical approach, one with a sense of humor, serious but fun. You most definitely share the fascination with the slipperiness of photography, the miraculousness and wonder that circles around it. As Bart tries to articulate between the punctum and studium. You wrote of Cummings, quote, the camera's power to both describe and mislead soon began to fascinate him, 
And so photography became the endpoint of his practice, end quote. I think you join him there. The whole idea of visualizing meaning through manufacturing concepts that in turn creates new concepts, the whole window and mirroring, the fabrication of the image in Cummings' case, and the fabrication of thought, experience, and reflection, in your case, in the form of a book or exhibition. The process is similar. As you investigate perspective, you enter a dynamic process and give into the perpetual illusions of both life and photography, embracing the, as you describe, quote, inherent instabilities of both. You play in a similar sandbox of documents, concepts, and metaphors, playing with the edge of understanding. So back to my food analogy, the petty four, the oven of ideas you bring us in image and text in this book. Adjectives abound as I encountered Cummings' selection for the large print project that make up the collection of images in this book. Arcane, engrossing, analytical, ambiguous, obsessive, absurd, elusive, idiosyncratic, witty, kinetic, enigmatic, allegorical, I should add hysterical, and as you noted, they hold mystery and revelation, dissonance and harmony. I believe your writing, and I assume your thinking, holds similar tensions. You have a capacity to state such complex realities in the most bared down terms. An example is your sentence in the book, in your essay describing photography, quote, how can light bouncing off a cube, all flat planes and right angles, pass through a lens, all curves and distortions and come out the other side intact, but upside down and back to front, end quote. Perplexity and contradictions are the ingredients of both your creative processes, regardless of the media used to manifest it and share it. Another analogy came to me as I grappled with my own understanding of this sweet book. I began to visualize Cummings as a composite of film characters, one part Napoleon Dynamite and the other Chance the Gardener from being there. <laughs> I love how you wrote we could describe his photographs to death because you said, his photographs describe the world to death. So I think Ben Rand's last line in being there is a good quote to frame our conversation when he says, life is a state of mind. Welcome, David. <laughs> it's very nice to see you and it's very nice to be to be back on the podcast. It's Thank very, you. very interesting listening to that string of adjectives you have there because... Only this morning I was talking to a friend about approaches to writing and I try to use as few as possible. Um, so when you when you gather the few up there, they, they do say something about the subject. Um, I don't know why I clutch at the idea of using adjectives. I think it's because, I don't know, adjectives are always describing the writer more than they're describing the image, let's say. So I, I tend not to... And to think three times before I use an adjective, as George Orwell said once. But it is interesting to hear that 
to hear that list. And I think you're right about Robert Cumming as an artist probably being quite close in sensibility to me. He was one I discovered um, in obscure catalogues <laughs> when I was an undergrad student. Um, I think when I first encountered, you know, what they call conceptual art, it tended to be the either the the New York East Coast, you know, kind of New York centered, uh, or it was the European, um, which was very cold and uh, often quite unforgiving and mirthless, you know, totally without humor. And, uh, and I, then I discovered Robert Cumming and maybe a whole generation of, of West Coast conceptualists that people now think of as being marked by a certain kind of sense of humour mm. amid the philosophical uh, chicanery and <laughs> uh, the, the figuring of things out. There, there was a sense of fun about it all and I, I do I do cherish that about Robert Cumming and um, he strikes me now as uh, of, of that generation who kind of turned to photography in the late 60s, early 70s. He's the, he, probably him and Baldessari, John Baldessari, they, they seem to be the ones with the with the lasting um, resonance for, for younger audiences, I think. Um, mm -hmm. but I've had a, I've had a long relationship with his, his work now and, mm -hmm. um, I, I only met him once um, when Aperture was doing a book of his work mm -hmm. called The Difficulties of Nonsense. And they mm -hmm. asked me if I would record an interview with him. So we sat down and we had a really, really lovely chat and got on very, very well. Um, and then I never really saw him again. And then sadly he died a couple of years ago. He would just before his, well, he would have been 80. I think he was 78. He would have been 80 a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, but about six months ago, an opportunity came up to do this book of these images that he'd selected to really define his photographic work. I mean, he was he was not just a photographer. He was a sculptor, painter. He could draw. He could mm -hmm. write. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the photographic work was a little over a decade, maybe, maybe it's 1969 to... 1980, 81, something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So it felt like a defined era of his work. And uh, in his last years, he went back through the hundreds and selected about 80 or so. And, and they are the, they are what you see in the book that I've, that I've put together. Um, so yes, it is a, it is, I love the way you phrased it there. It, it, it is a meeting of sensibilities. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank for give, thank you for giving me that word sensibilities because that's absolutely right on target. And um, I was reading uh, somewhere in an interview where you actually described your dislike of adjectives, and I thought, wow, I am the adjective queen. Like that's how I think. And partly when I do think about other people's work, I just list the adjectives, like I just write stuff down and that's how I end up with those lists. Cause it, frankly, let's put it this way. I would say adjectives help me understand what I'm thinking and seeing. And, and it's even interesting, I was trying to suss out because when I 
wanted to say that both I find you and Cummings unintentionally doing what you do. I was trying to find the right word for that. I could not find the adjective because it's not unconscious. It is somewhat unintentional, but he said it uh, somewhere where he called, um, I have it here. Um, it's that idea that it, there's almost an innocence to it. Like we're literally in your process with you. And that's what I think is so exciting and kind of really, really fun. Yeah, um, uh, that's interesting. I don't feel it's unconscious for Robert Cumming or for me, but yeah. there isn't, there's definitely an intent to wear whatever learning and craft there is quite lightly. So it can it can appear quite disarming or something, you know, if you get if you get a nice short sentence very precise, or you get or you get an idea very well expressed in a constructed photograph, it has a it has a kind of economy and an elegance about it that can look like it just happened, even though you've wetted over it <laughs> yes 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 it used to be a line from Calvin Klein about that how hard it is to be simple um yeah yeah, yeah. you do that you mentioned that um that often books come to you by chance how did this one initiate well I knew I know a guy called David Knaus who was, who was very good friends <coughs> with Robert coming and worked with Robert on what was ended up being called the large print project, which mm -hmm. was the, the shaping of a definitive body of his photographic work, scanning in the eight by 10 inch negatives, compiling all of the supporting material, drawing sketches, things like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then when uh, Robert Cumming died, I wrote to David Knaus just to offer my condolences. And I'd said that I'd seen a couple of these large prints of Robert's work in an exhibition gallery, Louis Otti in Los Angeles. And it, wouldn't it be amazing if it became a book because um, lovely as they are, I think the past publications of Robert's work never quite did um, the full richness of the images justice um, mm -hmm. you, you couldn't see all of this wealth of really interesting complex you know visual information which means you couldn't fully enter into his world so we had this idea of of, of making a book which is not a super large book but the the image occupies really as much of the page as possible um, and to reproduce the images really well, just just so that you can see them, and that mm -hmm. that reflects how these large prints are in exhibition. Um, mm -hmm. In most of his lifetime, Robert rarely made anything larger than a contact print. You know, mm -hmm. which was you know the the specialized form of the fine artist. You think of Edward Weston making con only contact prints of his eight by tens, and I guess what's interesting about Robert Cumming is that he he mixes that very very fine fine art craft mm. of camera work and printmaking and you know the tonality and the really really taking control of the sort of aesthetics of the image combines that with these 
crazy philosophical ideas and you know crackpot contraptions that he would make to then photograph um and that's quite unusual because when we when we think of photography coming out of conceptual art we think of what came to be called the quote unquote de-skilling of photography you know kind mm. of very image making you know don't don't get too fetishistic about the craft of it you know if mm. you're conveying ideas then you know make the photographs as simple and as amateurish as as possible mm -hmm. um robert just never went for that you know he happened to be taught by um a very very good american landscape photographer called art sinsabau and, and so he knew that craft and uh i think he set off as an artist wanting to be a sculptor mm -hmm. and then you know, very often if you want to get your sculpture into, you know, an open submission competition on the other side of the country, you can't send your sculpture. So he would taught himself <laughs> or perfected his photography in order to make really good documentation of his sculpture. And then sooner or later, he realized that a good photograph of a sculpture is better than a bad photograph of a sculpture and then mm -hmm. but maybe a good photograph of a sculpture is even more interesting than the sculpture <laughs> which of course is what happened to many photographers mm -hmm. who arrived at it through trying to document their work man ray is probably the most obvious mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Example. um and i think that alerted robert to the, what happens in the transition of an object into an image mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how a photograph may document it but also become very misleading or partial or idealizing or limited or expansive in in other ways but it, mm -hmm. it's, def it's definitely a transformation um, mm -hmm. but he gave up being a sculptor you know he was always making things that he would then photograph and he would make them to be photographed. In fact, he was in quite a famous show in the 70s called Fabricated to be Photographed, where they round, rounded up a number of artists who were working you know, in that manner. So it's interesting that you could be a, a sculptor and a painter uh, and a carpenter and a metal worker uh, while, while being a photographer at the same time and that whole craft complex can come together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so he had a kind of enviable way of just mastering any 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 craft or technique that he needed you know nothing, nothing yeah. was too much trouble at one point he had an idea to make a series of photorealist paintings of objects that he'd made and just taught himself to do it you know, mm. and I think he made about a half a dozen and that was mm. it. <laughs> it was on, mm. on to something else. Mm -hmm. I think that's when you or he were reflecting that he tried to become a camera and said enough of that. It took him like three years in that particular project. Yeah. 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 To do the I, photo, to do the photo realism. There's an interesting part about how fluid he was and kind of voracious. I love learning. Um, I I 
did some research and learning about when he made um, costume and incorporated performance and the whole male art that he did, that he actually was part of for years. Um, I loved his ability to have like kind of call and response, uh, yes. that seriousness, but yeah, he no, just didn't get caught. No, no, he didn't. And the getting caught is a really interesting thing, Sib, because you, if you spend long enough with photography, you notice that, um, I think while they're alive, the, the photographers who tend to be valued are the ones with a more or less defined practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course that suits the market and uh, it's it, it allows people to get their heads around what you do uh, it also stops artists making sharp changes of direction <laughs> unfortunately course, well many artists want to do that it's a very natural way and sometimes what looks like a sharp change of direction is actually not it might just be a change of medium or technique but the concerns are, are very similar although the art might look very different well that's one when artists are alive um, and I think then when they die there's a kind of brief moment where their work gets reduced to a kind of greatest hits mm -hmm. uh, you know the way that people talk about recently deceased artists in you know obituaries and tributes you know mm -hmm. they have they have to do it in very broad brushstrokes and define an artist but then you know a few years goes by and then people look again and say oh hang on actually this artist was a lot more interesting maybe because they were a lot more versatile than we thought that they couldn't be pigeonholed and actually not being pigeonholed is the is the interesting thing about them Mm, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. uh, that is a pattern that's very very difficult to break very very difficult to break and some artists who stayed quite d versatile in their own time mm -hmm. uh, were often overlooked or didn't quite get the attention they deserved or maybe they were only known for one of the things that they did mm -hmm. and so so Robert had this practice that didn't quite belong to capital F, capital A, you know, fine art photography. It didn't quite belong to conceptual art. It didn't quite belong to performance and it didn't quite belong to sculpture. And it wasn't really mixed media because what he ended up with was a photograph. And so he fell, he crossed, he straddled a lot of things, but he also fell in the gaps between a lot of things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, I, I remember over a number of years you know coming across one piece of information about him and then another and then another and ev every new piece extended it in a new direction somehow um, and maybe we're at a point now where we can look at his work in the round or even when we're looking just at his photographs we can say that yes the medium is photography but it is also sculpture and performance and drawing and it's so interesting I love that you talked about that and and thinking about I wondered because 
he he definitely was going against the market in certain ways, right? And he dabbled in New York and had gallery representation, but that's what mm -hmm. I loved is that he was he was in the world, but not of the world. And I was curious how he kept going. I know he kept teaching. I think it's interesting to think about the parallel paths of his pal, Wegman, who yeah. who we still have and obviously has, you know, a dog stamped on his forehead at a very, very different career mm -hmm. trajectory. And um how do you think yeah. Cummings kept moving forward, kept funding moving forward and kind of stayed in that space? It's not um, an easy one. Well, I think a lot of a lot of artists that first of all went to art school, let's say in the late 60s, uh, um, they, they're getting into a world where there's there's not much of an art market. There's a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. um, there's an idea that, well, on the one hand, uh, an arts education would be just a kind of training in the visual that you might be able to take in any number of directions, right? You didn't necessarily have to be, you know, a fine artist or, or an exhibiting artist. Mm -hmm. I think Robert realised that he, he did want to be that, um, but there wasn't much of a, a market that would keep you buoyant. Um, so you would teach. Mm -hmm. And actually the teaching meant that uh, no, and apart from the cost that it would that you would incur in making your work um, and the time you needed to make it, there were no other economic pressures. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. I mean, I, I know people get you know very dewy eyed about you know the <laughs> world of art and the, particularly the world of photography before the arrival of the market. Um, but it's certainly true when you look back that there that there were practices that were being made and pursued uh, out, out largely outside of an art market. Robert did sell things, and yes, he did he did and he did have different galleries, particularly Castelli Graphics in in New York for a while. Um, but yeah, he he taught. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's a very very good teacher, and yes, uh, William Wegman, his pal. Uh, they're they're very close together they're sharing studios um william calls it parallel play mm, mm -hmm. you just you just coexist with each other you know you don't you don't have to necessarily talk about what you're doing or influence each other you're just you're just in each other's presence so maybe something rubs off uh and something helps to distinguish you and yeah it's true that you know, wegman's early photographs are as funny or maybe even funnier than Robert Cummings, but they—they're definitely these kind of slightly de-skilled, you know, perfunctory pictures. He obviously didn't love the craft of photography; he wanted to look kind of slack and casual about it. Um, mm -hmm. The the way Robert absolutely didn't, and yeah, yes, it's true that that William Wegman had more kind of market success, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm. He's um, about to sell his New York studio uh, that just yeah. was written up. Um, I'm, I'm, I came across a couple of words that I thought were good to tease apart that you brought us in your essay. Um, and I loved uh, looking at photography as specialism. And you've kind of touched on that. Um, and, and, and I think what I gather is 
at the time, he had a lot of peers, especially on the West Coast, that were in that dabbling, as you said before, not 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 being part of fine art of photography or not like using photography in your art or considering your art photography. Yes. Yeah. No, that's that's true. That it, that does need teasing apart because it could seem a little bit complicated. Mm. Um, but well, what's happening in in uh, California in the late sixties? You know, that's the that's that's the home of you know American commercial cinema. Mm -hmm. And if you think about what's going on towards the end of what got called the studio system, uh, where you know, technicians and actors were under contract and the, there was a kind of honing of um, the craft of photography, maybe to a point where it was becoming a little bit stifling. And as the studio system comes to an end, there's all new kind of innovations begin to enter Hollywood. It's interesting that that's happening at the same time as all of those boundary breaking things that we associate with you know kind of pop and conceptual art are, are happening but there is there is an awareness of a thing called craft mm -hmm. craft, craft tends to imply specialism like getting getting really good at your metier um mm -hmm. but the interesting thing about cinema let's say is it's such a combination of crafts metiers there's a cinematographer there's a prop maker there's a costume person there's a makeup person there's a lighting person there's a sound people composers you name it um mm. and the interesting thing about movie making is that, that all of those jobs are very very well defined mm -hmm. for those people so they each have a sense of specialism while those specialisms are then being combined in what we call cinema. And mm -hmm. Robert Cumming talked often about, he didn't want to make films, but he, he was well aware that in order to make the kind of image you see in cinema, um, it's not just photography or cinematography. There's, you know, sets have been built, props have been built, all the rest of it. Um, Okay, so that's that's a version of, of specialism and how specialisms might combine. Then there's a way of approaching photography as something that you just kind of pick up that you don't kind of care about necessarily. You're not you're not invested in deepening the craft of it. It's it's just a more or less perfunctory image that belongs to you know visual culture in general. And I suppose that's what's going on in pop art and it's what's going on in a lot of conceptual art. Um, you know, Robert's, Robert's kind of right in the middle of all of that. He's very, he's very well aware of those things. I think people who have a, a disposition towards craft and just getting, just getting really good at, at you know, at making something really well, Mm -hmm. uh you can't talk those people out of it you just want to do it really well <laughs> it's mm -hmm. just they just do there's there's a great adventure in 
um, you know, learning to do something until you get it right. And then finding that, you know, innovation and experimentation can come out of your technical competence of how, you know, how well you can do things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very old fashioned sort of modernist idea. You know, the art, the artist has their idea. The medium has its limitations. The artist bumps up against their limitations and the art is a is a consequence of that. Um, and the more you do it, the better you get at it and the deeper your challenges become. It sounds very old fashioned in a way, but it doesn't it doesn't have to be. Um, mm-hmm. But we know that photography can be pursued in other ways by not not caring about the craft in that much depth and and amazing things can be done with it you know, mm-hmm. in any value judgments here really extraordinary things can can come from thinking of photography as as having almost no craft basis to it at all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some, you know immediate connection with the observable world you know amazing things have come out of that working with found images too something i've done in the past so it's that's a real kind of suitcase of a question there, Sib, the whole <laughs> specialism, generalism, craft, uncraft. Uh, Robert Cummings definitely a good place to be thinking about all of that, for sure. Yeah, well, I think that that's what happened as I really grappled with everything that came out of this book, which is what made me go into the analogy of the pedophore because it was layered and mm-hmm. there is a sweetness in it and, a, and kind of an entry because of course you've got all those layers that um, so interesting to think about him in his time and then him in his impact over time. Um, and I love some of the things that came out that I'm trying to, Uh, that I'd love for us to tease out is something like that, where we just think about specialism and then it opens up all of these areas. Um, You, there are two two competing things I wanna talk about. One, um, I'll go back to what what Cummings said um, that he found himself uh, doing in the process, that he, um, he made a reflection on intimism which was the other word I wanted to bring up because I was like, okay, what 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 are we talking about there? And he was really talking about, um, you know, aware of both the artistic movement as the style of painting, um, bringing in the domestic, but also a reflection of an inner individual kind of psychological experience, and that's the kind of reverberation of you know, sandwiched in between what seems like something observable or understandable are all these things that aren't. <laughs> and that's what I kept having to go back and forth in, in trying to yeah, he run does... along the two of side, run alongside the two of you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does, he does describe himself at one point as an, as an intimist. Mm-hmm. And I know that what he meant, first of all, was was a very kind of practical thing that he'd all of these different kinds of photographs and ideas that he turned into images. Um, 
80% of them were made in and around his LA backyard. Absolutely. And yeah. it, and in and inside the home. Yeah. Kitchen. And yeah. Kitchen. Now the interesting thing is, you know, most conceptual artists valued the idea of the, the studio, the empty white studio in which you you know, enact, you know, you think of like, I don't know, Bruce Nauman or, or someone like that doing all of those mm -hmm. interesting things in his white, white studio. Um, Cumming hardly ever did that. So what you get is photographs, let's say, there's a very well known photograph of his called watermelon forward slash bread. <laughs> watermelon forward slash bread. Mm -hmm. And from like 1969 or 70 or something like that. And you're looking at a kind of hunk of watermelon in the side of which appears to be a slice of bread. Maybe it's a whole sandwich, but we can only see a, a slice of bread. Uh, and it's, it kind of sits there perfectly, like, like something you might mm. dream. And I talk about dreaming in the in the essay, mm. that you know, dreams are not hazy, wishy-washy things. They are very, very lucid things full of believable detail. <laughs> Um, even if it's wild what's happening um and so you look at this thing and it's a hunk of watermelon with a bread in the side i mean who knows why he wanted to do that it, you one you cannot fault the execution of it and you're in the world of kind of his brain but yeah. you're, also, you're also in his kitchen Right. And he and it's 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 on a kitchen in which there's any number of other things, you know, yes. books. And, mm. books. and so it's a world of this kind of teeming. Realist documentary detail, if if he just plonked that melon on a white plinth in a white studio, it wouldn't have half the effect or half the kind of hokey endearing <laughs> charm um, and he loved all of those incidental details that photography would pick up right there's, there's no point having an 8 by 10 studio if you're uh, 8 by 10 camera if you're just mm. going in blank white studio there's not oh that's okay for Richard Avedon I guess but <laughs> 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 not not for Robert so he he loved you know he, there, there's a photograph with a look what looks like a chair mm. levitating Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a little domestic chair levitating in his backyard but it's in his backyard right and you yeah. can see you can see the fence and you can see the patio and again it's that slightly lucid dream quality you know if it was a if it was a chair in a plain white studio again it wouldn't it wouldn't be convincing and it wouldn't be engaging um, mm -hmm. and and this is partly why he finally, towards the end of his life, wanted to to make these much larger prints. And then that's what led me to make this book where, you know, the image on the page is. Is pretty large, it's larger than eight, eight by ten, and you can really you can really see everything and enjoy that world of detail that he was fascinated with. And do you think that was that was the idea that these would get printed that large? Like, do you think there's an exhibition in the making of what's in the book becoming? Oh, well, the, um, uh, Teresa Luisotti, Gallery Luisotti in, in L.A. has has done some exhibitions of the 
the larger prints and they're up to you know kind of 80 by 60 inches uh jean kenta gautier a, a gallerist based in paris is uh, uh is on the third of three consecutive robert Cumming shows looking mm -hmm. at his relation to drawing looking at his relation to sculpture looking at his relation to performance um, mm -hmm. and they've been really really well received um also i think you know Cumming was making the work in that era in which scale was regarded uh, as a, rather foolishly, it was regarded as a kind of cheap effect, a cheap gesture. Hmm. Uh, and photographers only start really thinking about scale and the tableau form, you know, towards the, towards the end of the 70s. I think people associated... Well, for example, you know, in 1971, uh, the Museum of Modern Art has a Walker Evans retrospective. Mm -hmm. which John Schakowsky puts together and it's going to be 200 more or less eight by 10 photographs, which is a lot to look at. Yeah. Takes, a, takes a lot out of the viewer's nervous system. And Schakowsky decides to have 12 of them enlarged. Very, very large, like sort of six foot tall. Um, to punctuate the space as kind of graphic dividers. But they happen to be beautifully printed, you know, from the negatives. And... So there was a chance to really see these 12 pictures in an extraordinarily different way. Interestingly, MoMA didn't destroy them. They ended up deacquisitioning them and they are in other collections and, and people love them, people adore them. But, you know, Schakowsky was only thinking about that scale just to break up the space a bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of photographers sort of in, inherited that, you know, the large image was something that you associated with, you know, advertising or fashion or, uh, which is a crazy idea, you know, painters have worked at a large scale for, for centuries, you know, and it's been technically possible in photography, you know, for a long, long time, right, right mm -hmm. back to, right back to the 19 teens and, and, and 20s, you could do pretty big things. So I think Robert was caught up with that idea of, you know, just making a 10-8 contact print. Um, but anyone who's made a 10-8 contact print knows, one, just how much detail there is in the negative and how much there is in the print that is beyond eyesight. You just, you just, you physiologically, you can't see it, you know, an mm. eagle. An eagle probably could, because they have eyesight, you know, 10 times better than us. They could pick mm. out all of that detail. Um, mm. And I, I think you like the idea that there was there was more, there was more detail than you could really see. Mm -hmm. um, I remember asking when I had a published conversation with him about a decade ago, I remember asking him about this, this scale question and he felt that it wasn't possible to make satisfying enlargements from an eight by 10. It's just, it's just technically quite difficult to do it in a traditional darkroom, you know, to keep the whole neg completely in focus and all of that, all of that detail there. 
and and then you know digital scanning came along and the kind of control you can have on the, the output um you know suddenly made it realizable but you know photography is full of new technologies that make old desires achievable mm-hmm. 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 Uh, and i think he was r- really thrilled with the with the large prints that, that he was able to make in those in those last few years mm-hmm. well it was interesting because i was thinking about what are the name of the um the film stills that inspired him in the beginning there's a technical term for it in cinema Oh yeah, continuity stills. Yeah. Continuity stills. I could not remember yeah. that name. Yeah. And yeah. the idea, um, I don't know. It's so fun to think about the fact that he was drawn in by them. He collected them. And then that really fed how he thought. Then he fabricated so much. And then in the fabrication, he held that line between craft and and specialization and still kept hold of his idea and then what's really fascinating is it it circled around to when he was literally um asked to film on set like to go to the actual movie sets like i i love this idea in th- in that one decade right that this one thing he found then he took his home and 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 it became like a film set. He was doing it all by himself. And it, it was fascinating to then, it's like all of a sudden he went into the world he had created. It's like Alice in Wonderland, like coming through and going, wow, there's a lot of tea parties. I didn't know about these other ones. It's fascinating. No, it is. And there's, I mean, it's one day someone will do a very interesting history and a exhibition and a book. It might be me one day. I just was going to say, I'm looking at him. We know that. (laughs) For sure. About the fact that the Hollywood studios, uh, really in the early 70s, started dumping onto the secondhand market, you know, like bookstores, essentially. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of thousands of uh, photographs related to the film industry. Mm hmm. And I, when we think of film stills, we think of, you know, the publicity stills that they used to, you know, reproduce in newspapers or magazines or have outside the cinema, mm-hmm. at the movie theater. But then there was a whole other kind, which was the continuity still. So what would happen is, you know, a movie would often be shot out of sequence. So, you know, maybe let, let's say there's, a, let's say that a scene is being shot uh, let's say a, a kind of domestic argument between a couple is being shot in a in a dining room, and uh, she throws a cup at him, and he ducks, and it hits the wall, and the pieces fall on the floor, and they might not be able to film uh, the next shot in that scene for a week or two, but everything has to stay where it is on the set. So a continuity photographer comes in and they're a little bit like if you imagine a kind of police crime scene photography <laughs> okay mm-hmm. everything has to stay in its place nobody touch anything this could be important evidence uh so detail really mattered so they would shoot large format um but they wow. were 
they weren't narrative photographs, so they tended not to have the actors in them. They tended to be of the the lit mm -hmm. em empty sets. So they were they were kind of pregnant with a sense of narrative. Something's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all kinds of artists loved these pictures. John Devola, for example, in who's also in LA, John Baldessari. Mm -hmm. um, John Stezaker, the British uh, collage artist. Gosh, they were all called John. Um, <laughs> and of course, later a different kind of film still influences um, Cindy Sherman. Mm -hmm. But Robert Cummings sees a whole bunch of these in the early 70s and thinks to himself, hey, this crackpot stuff I've been doing in my backyard is actually not so different from what goes on on Hollywood set. You know, they have to build something and they... Maybe they have to build a room, but they're only building a room knowing that it's going to be shot from a particular angle. Uh, maybe they don't need to build the back of something. <laughs> and <laughs> and then, yeah, scroll forward through the 70s, towards the end of that decade, he gets a chance to shoot on um, the back lots and the sound stages of Universal Studios. And he finds an entire kind of coming world you know now it's not this little shoestring operation in his backyard this is kind of multi-million dollar you know prop building set building uh background painting all of that stuff mm -hmm. and he, he from the pictures that he made there you just think that he must have thought he was in heaven you know he mm -hmm. Just entered this extraordinary world, uh, and and of course he was there as Robert Cumming. You know, he didn't, he wasn't working for the film companies for the film productions. He he could just observe these extraordinary constructions. You know, where you may get, you know, fake trees mixed in with real trees mixed in with this. You know, the side of a car, but the the other side of a car doesn't exist because, you know, they have to put a film camera there or um, there's an amazing photograph that he made of a of a motorized shark's fin. So if you imagine a kind of shark's fin, the kind of contraption underneath of like sort of pipes and bladders. And it was for Jaws 2, you know, the follow up to the Spielberg movie. You uh, know, how, how do they motorize a, <laughs> you know, a shark? Simulate. Fin. Mm, yeah. It's the kind of thing he would make. It was the kind of thing he would make. And he, I think he realized uh, that he wasn't, he, it wasn't so eccentric what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Actually, so many of the images we see and enjoy every day are made with the, you know, that kind of dedicated um, sense of craft, which if looked at in slightly the wrong way is just really strange and un unusual. And I think that led him to that experience at Universal led him to conclude that decade or so of photography. He did come back to it mm, uh, mm -hmm. now and again. And he did, for example, make some amazing pictures on the uh, for the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. A whole bunch of photographers were, were commissioned and he made be beautiful color pictures of, again, strange, you know, like the the instruments that would measure you know whether uh, uh, the 
the the rapier of two um oh, what do you call them what what are people with the with the swords uh fencing yeah fencing fences <laughs> Is that yeah. A, okay. Like, yeah, like the little machine where the light would go off if the mm. you know, if, if the fencer had been struck by. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, he would photograph things like this, and again, but again, wherever he went, he would he would sort of find the the kind of crazy comingness mm. of it, you know. And I think it just came completely naturally to him. It's just it it was that kind of curious mind combined with a kind of um the world is that sense of the world is very practical you know somebody had to make everything in the world mm -hmm. and it's strange it's strange at the same time as being kind of obvious so, so. yeah that that's so cool because that reminds me he was born in Worcester here in Massachusetts which is a manufacturing town and that whole idea of like the industrialization yeah uh, never left him but yeah. neither, like, it's kind of really interesting, too, that he was in both worlds, right? A very practical labor yeah. world and then this world of ideas. There's so many um, double things that go around, like, for instance, the um, continuity stills influencing him and then him being back in that space. One of the things I came across, this is a total tangent, but it's too good not to share, is the idea of the double obituary that his death was conflated with another person. And in the 90s, his obituary came out in the New York Times and it wasn't him. There was That's an hilarious. There was, an there was an actor in Hollywood called Robert Cumming. And if you look up Robert Cumming photograph on eBay, mm -hmm. you'll, you'll find lots of Hollywood portraits of the actor called Robert Cumming. Mm -hmm. And then there was a Navy person yeah, yeah, it was it was the difference between their middle names. And so that idea that that he had the um, it was it, this was Sarah. They um, you told me. Thank you. Tell me again. Sarah Ray Gasho. Yes. Yeah. Gasho wrote about this, this idea that he had the opportunity to have an exit twice. He was around for his first one, which was a mistake. And yeah. then and then the second. That's the kind of thing that there's this. There's this fanciful and magical piece that keeps circling around him, whether he wants to or not. You know, yeah. it, it's, it's just part of it. Um, one thing I wanted to, to open up is this idea, and you tease it out, and he does too, and it's about landing in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of things. You talk about it, thinking about the contraptions in front of the camera as being part of the photography. Um, yes. It's again, the whole thing of you teasing out what is photography and, and, and how there's this back and forth between the process and the product. Yeah. Yes. It's uh, that's, that that question has uh, I was going to say it's bugged me. It hasn't bugged me. It's kind of entertained me for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. But it, I, it's interesting to think about it in in relation to Robert's work because we mm. we tend to think of if we think of photography as a medium, we think of uh, you know the camera and the camera might be a combination of 
you know, a lens, a shutter, and a light sensitive surface of one kind or another, some kind of black box, like that. There are other things, there are always exceptions, of course. Um, and then we tend to think of what's in front of the camera as uh, not being part of the medium. Mm -hmm. But there's there's really no photography without light bouncing off things in front of the camera, which imply things, <laughs> <laughs> the things off which the light has bounced. Um, and so what would it mean if that was what was in front of the camera was also part of the medium? Yeah. That the, the photographer is a, is facilitating a relationship <laughs> between the camera and things that are in front of it. But that whole thing could be understood as a medium. That becomes much, much clearer if we're thinking about someone like Robert Cumming, where things are being fabricated in order to photograph them. Right, that you're that you're making a contraption or something in front of the camera, and then the camera is another contraption, and and one of them takes an image of the light bouncing off the other. But but in a way, the it's a choreography between one continuous medium. So, sculptor, fabricator, performer, photographer are, are just all part of the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like when. Rosalind Krauss wrote about um, Cindy Sherman Sherman, and said, well, it, it doesn't totally make sense to say that Cindy Sherman's medium is photography because clearly her medium is also herself mm -hmm. or, or her, her outward appearance and how it can be shaped and transformed in one way or another. That's that's the medium too. Mm -hmm. right? Her body. Mm -hmm. Her body. Uh, but if it's if it's if that is true for those that are fabricating things, it must also be true for those who aren't. Mm -hmm. uh, although we we tend to think of the photographer and the camera being quite separate from the world, you know, when we think of just you know observational photography or street photography, we don't we don't. It's harder to keep that expanded idea of a medium alive somehow but I, I either it's either it's true for all photography or mm. it isn't mm -hmm. uh, kind of leave it open in the essay but it's worth I think it's an idea that's worth thinking about um because absolutely it it gets us out of a certain trap of thinking about what photography years or thinking about that question in particular ways if if quote unquote subject matter or what they used to say in semiotics the referent the thing that's mm -hmm. the thing camera is somehow part of the medium then that that recasts the the whole thing photography's photography is not separate from the world that it um records or records the light of so i mean i think that idea really gave me a run for the money and I will continue to think about it, but mm. Cummings references it with the photograph of his bus. Um, I don't have the piece in front of me right now to give you the correct title. Totally hilarious. 
that he was at, it was, someone was looking for a sculpture or a piece at a certain size that dawned on Cummings was actually the size of his Volkswagen bus. Yeah. So then he frames the bus and then photographs it. Like here's my sculpture. But however, he talks about that the bus <laughs> in all of its meanderings is part of the work. Yeah. Yeah. Which he makes, uh, yeah, he's got his kind of VW, you know, combi uh and he makes he makes a, a kind of frame around it a, let, mm -hmm. let's say a wooden frame mm. uh that's the size of it and then the, the 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 photograph gets called um a five foot by six foot by eight by eight foot space <laughs> <laughs> Fit, but it just happens to be filled with his v, his vw van <laughs> but it's a way of it's a, it's a way of indicating you know what that volume of, of space is. There's, there's another one where he photographs the the front of a truck mm -hmm. and he, he has appended to the front of a truck a, a kind of uh, a piece of paper on which he's written, <laughs> a truck is an object. And, this, and the facade, the front of the bus fills the entire frame of the photograph. So it's just this kind of yes. kind of unarguable object kind of coming coming at you that so the whole that whole piece okay we have to like okay you have to write your book on 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 film stills and we have to come back to this idea um because it's a big one and 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 it bounces back and forth and it kind of goes circular i think it's so yeah. so interesting i'm gonna i'm trying to cover a couple more things and one i'm gonna bring you to a quote that you said not in this essay, but I wonder if it relates. Um, it's the meaning of any image is in its destination. Hmm. And um, it was something that you had said before. So I'm wondering, is does that have anything to do with what we're talking about and any of the thinking? Yeah, it does. I mean, I mean, I'm... I'm interested in um, what what viewers do. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, they they are the they are the destination, and and their response is the meaning of the work. It's quite true that we live in a culture where viewers um, often don't know what to do mm -hmm. when that situation and they will defer to some statement about intentions or what the work means which is a sort of abdication of their responsibility as viewers and of course photographers often like to step in and tell you what, what you're doing, seeing what they're doing and what you're seeing and um and i understand that to an extent because photographs when they're not in art are always in, accompanied by writing that is explaining what the photograph cannot possibly explain. Photographs mm. are showing, they're not very good at explaining things, you know, hence the caption and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, I, in, in the absence of that kind of information, you would think that, you know, looking at a photograph in the context of art would be um, an occasion for response. Just respond. Just have having your response, mm -hmm. and uh, 
to that extent, yeah, the meaning of an image is in, in is in its destination. It's interesting for me as a writer because I I am trying my very best not to interpret. Mm -hmm. well, very rarely you'll find a, in any of my writing um, me telling you what something means. Mm -hmm. I just don't do that. Mm -hmm. It just mm -hmm. feels it feels absurd to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm to do it feels absurd for me to tell the viewer the intentions of the photographer and the artist mm -hmm. just uh it's not interesting and they i mean and we can't know it mm -hmm. we can't know it and it and it also it, it just takes away what is rightfully the viewers which is the opportunity to respond to something mm -hmm. it's funny i, I took some students so some of my first year undergrad students were asking me about this in a seminar. You know, they said, David, you know, quite often, you know, photographers, they make they make statements about their work. And then <laughs> those statements become the what I, what I like to call the script for looking. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the students, she said, well, you know, sometimes you see work and then you see the statement made on its behalf. And you just think, well, I didn't see that coming. That was like, how? <laughs> How is this work conveying what the artist claims it's? it's <laughs> uh, so I said, well, you know, instead of a seminar next week, well, let, let's go and see the show. Let's let's put this to the test. Okay, David, what show are we going to see? I said, well, I can't tell you because you'll read about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a bit of a magical mystery tour, and we went to a particular exhibition, and I I stood in front of the you know the declarative text at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Just said nothing to see here. <laughs> Go and have your response to the work. So they had their response to the work, but after twenty minutes of talking about it, they said, "Well, can we know what it really means?" Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, well, this is interesting. You know that they they don't, they're not encouraged to trust themselves to just mm -hmm. respond, right? They feel that they're they're not knowing or their confusion or their ambiguity is not interesting it's just something that they have to quell by by reading a statement mm. that's it's all about it's a worry in culture absolutely it's, it's a big worry so i mean when it comes to this book for example i could have written a, i could have gone on writing it and say 10 times as long yeah probably overstepped the mark I would have probably begun making my own response to the work um, well yeah I mean I think that's one of the things that I was trying to say when I was introducing how you like he don't overstep that there isn't the authoritarian hand saying this is what this is about um and I thought about that when I was moving through the book, how your essay was parsimonious. It had all these things that we could go off on as I've tried to illuminate a few of them that are very deep and very big. Um, yeah. But you just hinted at it. Again, yeah. I go back to my petty four. It was an appetizer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to be... The more I write, the more restrained I want to be about that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
um, I think what you're trying to do as a writer is 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 open things up, not close them down. Mm -hmm. you know, deepen things, and if that means deepening the mystery, fair enough. Uh, so you're you're maybe offering a number of keys and a number of ways in, but you're certainly not. I'm certainly not kind of offering meanings or or readings. Mm -hmm. I, like, I like I like reading it when other writers do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that's I think that's where all the fun is. Myself, um, mm. one thing I wanted to touch on was how uh, contemporary people working in the coming nin. Let me see if I can say it. Coming. Ninness, coming ninness, you know, yeah. in in that genre, like you mentioned a number of people, I think there was one, two, three, four, five, six people you mentioned this idea of photographer fabricators yeah. that are working now. Yeah. Yeah. I think of people like Honorato and Krebs, or I, I can't think of Shannon Ebner not having some kind of, some kind of if she doesn't have a connection with Robert Cummings' work, then mm -hmm. there's an amazing sort of affinity there. I think of a very different way. I think of someone like Lucas Blaylock, who, you know, uses a lot of digital technology, but I think his interest in a kind of perceptually misstepping the viewer um, has a kind of consonance with with coming people like Anne Hardy who kind of constructs mm -hmm. sets to be to be photographed I think there's something of coming in Jeff Wall mm -hmm. in a very different kind of way um, but I think it's I think because Cummings work is so rich I think you can find a lot of connections also I mean there, there are there are artists that work you know in that very kind of strictly analytical kind of conceptual vein you know looking at the conditions of language or the conditions of the camera and all of that um, mm -hmm. that would connect with that would connect with coming um but i think generally contemporary audiences are much more uh accepting and intrigued by what coming does i mean he always had his fans they were they were devout people that just really appreciated and adored what he was doing mm, mm -hmm. was making the work uh yeah, he probably was a little ahead of his time and there's a, there is a more uh there, there's a there's an audience a larger audience with more open arms for his work now for sure mm -hmm. i was thinking um of, of uh, a couple of artists myself that I saw the influence um Sandy Haber Fifield um yeah. and Sonia Thompson um yeah yeah I can see that yeah the fluidity between the um mediums um mm. at the same time as questioning yeah the bounds of the craft right yeah, and that idea that you that you make a piece of work be that that feels obvious to you while you're making it, and mm. and it, but in a way the obviousness is a bit little bit like the rungs on the ladder. 
and then you've you've made the final work and then you've kicked you've actually kicked the rungs out <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then you then you offer this perch <laughs> to, mm. to the viewer and they've actually got no 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 idea how you got there or why uh um, i love visualizing that and i totally get it and actually that's such a great way to describe what's going on right this idea of there's the steps and then you kick out the steps and then you say like how did you get here that again circular i think that's i think that's just quite common to art making maybe it's maybe it's dramatized in a certain way in in robert cummings work and in the artists with the contemporary artists we're listing here but they they somehow mm-hmm. they somehow make that act part of the the pleasure and the suggestion of the work but mm-hmm. I, I think looking at all art on some level involves a thinking about how it got made how did that thing come to be is a very very basic question um mm-hmm. and you know some artworks you can you can you can figure it out you know like a detective and people do this with you know mm. Jackson Pollock's abstract painting you know they can you know they can they can figure out from the arc and the intensity of the splashes literally how far away his arm was from the canvas and mm. you know, what kind of brush and what kind of viscosity of paint and uh I I don't doubt there's an awful lot of pleasure to be had in that kind of figuring out mm-hmm. I mean the, the interesting thing about photographs is for all of their descriptive capacity they they don't necessarily describe how they came to be you know so what might look like a street photograph could turn out to be a film still Mm -hmm. it's like a documentary picture could turn out to be anything but um, what looks like something that was m- m- somehow made by the artist in in order to be photographed was not. They just maybe came across it. You can't know. You ca- you you cannot know. Photo- photography. Ca- pho- it's interesting. People talk about photography it, as as a kind of trace. I think of it as something that covers its traces. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of walks backwards, you know, sweeping the ground <laughs> behind it. So you, when you're left with the photograph, maybe it's the ladder and the rungs again. Maybe it's the mm-hmm. same. You're left with this thing without quite knowing how it how it came to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's so interesting. I I I am thinking about uh, as I tried to frame how to get into the layers of the petty four because they could take me and us in so many directions. Um, One time I was thinking, oh, E.E. Cummings is one of my favorite poets. And I'm like, maybe E.E. Cummings has given me something to grapple with. And so I I, I roll these ideas around in my mind. And somehow, I don't know where in what I've been reading, thinking about this. And I don't know if someone gave this reference or where I found it, but it's to a Shakespeare's sonnet. 53. And the quote is, what is your substance? Whereof are you made that millions of strange shadows on you tend? And I loved that. That's pretty good. What's that from? (laughs) I don't know. And I don't know what 
where I stumbled yeah. on it in the last week as I've been deeply thinking and gathering. I'm, I, I, I'll have to see if I can retrace my steps because it's it, for, yeah, for me to work with my own thinking on your mm. object. Um, yeah, I, I try to find my ways in. That's interesting. I do. I mean, I definitely know that there was something motivating that in the making of the book that. Um, and it was something that Greg Barker, Stanley Barker, the publisher, really understood that there was mm -hmm. there was a lot we had to kind of there was a lot of the richness of the work that we really had to honor and the particularity of it. So he, mm -hmm. for example, coming often made work that was uh, in a diptych form or triptych form or kind of five panels. Um, and they they tend in past publications to get really reduced on the page. So we went into it committing to, you know, quite a number of gatefolds where, <laughs> where the pages would fold out and you'd keep the scale of the images. Yeah, yeah which is... Really mm. and, and so that... It's interesting, there's... I think whoever looks at the book will have to make their mind up about this because it's this is the first posthumous book of coming mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when you're it's really interesting dynamic there, you you would you would think that if you're you're if you're dealing with uh, an artist's work posthumously, um, there's a certain kind of freedom, maybe. In, in fact, it's quite the opposite. You, I feel particularly um, beholden that there's, there's mm. something to be honoured here. And because I can't ask mm -hmm. the person, I just have to be super, super conscientious about it. I remember doing a book about um, the magazine work made by Walker Evans, which I, I thought that work that he'd made for magazines where he was the photographer, the writer the editor, the designer, I thought mm -hmm. it was extraordinary. And, uh, you know, I rounded up all of that work and made a book about it, mm -hmm. idle. But I remember when the copies of the book arrived from the publisher, and I've done enough books to know what that feeling is like. There's always a bit of excitement and sort of trepidation when, you're, when the author's copies arrive. Mm -hmm. I was overwhelmed with doing that Evans book and doing this coming book with the feeling of, Oh, would they have liked it? Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have we done the right thing? You mm -hmm. know, yeah, and mm -hmm. you can never know for sure, but it's it's an enormous. It's not that it's a it's not a weight of responsibility. It's just a it's just a challenge, you know, that you're trying mm -hmm. to. So it's not. I mean, he made a lot of books, self-published a lot of books. So in a way, those books are his artworks. Mm -hmm. in a way that this book of Robert Cummings work is not it's a book of his work but it's very it's very much in the spirit of the books that he's made although we've made the images a lot larger on the page um actually yeah, I I, I think what to feel like a Robert Cummings book you know well yes uh to what I thought and I'm I could be wrong about this but that your cover looked like the cover of his equilibrium rotary disc it does yeah it's derived from that well there you go i thought so 
And, and the typefaces we use are very mm. close typefaces that he's used in his previous books. Mm -hmm. um, thing we have to be very careful about things like when you have like a double spread of a book and it's a landscape format book, mm -hmm. because most, not all of his images were eight by ten landscape format. Um, sometimes I've placed a single image that Robert made next to another symbol in single image, but they are slightly further apart <laughs> than the works that were officially diptychs by Robert. Ah. They go closer together. And you, you may not notice this, but ah. you will pick it up. Subconsciously, you'll you'll pick it up. So there's lots of little, little things. It doesn't feel like a particularly designed book, but mm -hmm. then as is often the case with books that don't feel particularly designed, they're very designed. You have to, that's exactly. A, yeah. That's yeah. effect that you have to work at to achieve. Um, and that would be lost because I still haven't gotten my hands on the actual book. Um, so I was working from the PDF, but that will be very exciting to, because, and I knew that there were, um, because I saw the video that there were fold outs, but I, yeah. Um, and that the fact that you were playing with the positioning is yeah. really interesting. I don't know. I, I will look for that, obviously. So it's um, a lot's going to happen at Paris Photo um, because of the, the movie that's going to be debuted. Yes. So um, a documentary has been made, which will mm -hmm. you... Um, at the Musée Européen de la Photographie, there'll be a screening and, mm -hmm. well, this is an interesting question. I've been asked to do a number of signings, but I'm, I'm really the only the editor and I've written the text at the beginning. However, <laughs> um, Robert once signed a book for me with the most beautiful drawing of, mm. of a plate camera. Whoa. Really gorgeous drawing. And then there was a, a sort of inscription to me underneath. So I've turned that drawing <gasps> of the camera into a rubber stamp. That's great. And so <laughs> oh. if, if you meet me in Paris, there'll, there'll be a signing at the Musée European de la Photographie. There'll also be a signing with Stanley Barker that have a book booth at the fair. Um, mm -hmm. I will sign it with my signature, but you will also Yay. get a coming camera rubber stamp in your book. And in fact, we're, we're on Zoom here and I know you can see me. But that so is so exciting. To test it on, on my on my copy, you can see it there. Oh, that's so good. See, what a wonderful really, idea. It really could draw. So you will you will get a little bit of Robert if you get your book signed, even though he passed away a couple of years ago. That is so wonderful. Actually, I will see you at Paris Photo. And I actually already have my ticket, you can see, for Meep, because I'll be there all afternoon on Saturday, because that's when your screening is. But um, that's also, um, there's a talk that night because of Vivian Sesson's work oh, yes. that's in the exhibit. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, it's always that, how can I be in five places at the same time, but I'm excited. So now I'll get the book, I'll get my imprint. 
Um, and you know what's really interesting? I wanted to let you know that um, Karen Haas here at the Boston um, MFA has two um, Cummings photographs coming up in her show that's opening the weekend we're gonna be in Paris. Um, her show is Creative Spaces, the photographer's studio as inspiration. Right. Okay, there's also at Parry Photo, you'll be able to see Robert's work with Gallery Louis Sarti, who I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Jean Kenta Gautier the, is their gallery. It will have the third part of their mm -hmm. Robert Cummings part exhibition. And also, you'll see some of Robert's work at the booth of Hans P. Krauss, who's essentially a 19th century photography dealer. Yes. They're presenting a booth where 19th century work is being put into dialogue with contemporary work by a range of different artists, one of whom is Robert. So, yes, it, it, it'll be a little bit of a Robert Cumming fest. Yes, yes. Things happen like that. And, and sometimes, you know, ahead of time and other times it just becomes obvious. Wow, that's super exciting. And that, you know what I was thinking? Um, I'm I'm looking at the um, part of the movie, the um, On Closer Inspection. I, I haven't finished it, um, but it was what I find, I love the serendipity. Yeah, that's the right term, um, that this podcast will drop in early November, that the at the same time that the film screening's happening. And then in the film is an interview from him of Robert talking in November of 1976. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a lovely film. It's been made by um, uh, Noah Rosenberg, and he's you know he's he's talked to uh, uh, a number of people, um, including uh, Marvin Heiferman, who knew him a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you do get you do get a sense of what Robert kind of meant then and and then talking to younger people about you know what what he means to kind of younger audiences now mm. wow well thank you so much for letting me uh chew on this petty for <laughs> i think i'll be coming back to it always a pleasure oh thank you Thank you for joining our conversation. For more ways to impact the concept development of your own work, please consider joining one of my online workshops and also joining me virtually at Paris Photo. My work focuses on how you see and why it matters, and my services offer practical and applicable tools to add to your existing creative practice. More information can be found under the services tab on my website, jsibillasmith.com. And if you enjoy our podcast, please follow, subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate when you share this resource and give us a shout out. Concept Aware is being listened to by the thousands in over 60 countries. Please connect on other social media platforms where you will find me under jsibilla. I use all these methods to engage and expand our global visual culture conversation.